0: See. <coughs> Today's very text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter, verse 1 through 13. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And let on a high apart by himself. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became a dazzling light, such as no one on earth could believe him. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, by, it's good for us to be here. Let us take three dwellers. One of the few of the closest ones were Peter did not know what to say because he was terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud came a voice This is my son, the beloved, obey him. Suddenly, the disciples looked around They saw no one them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered the disciples to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could even mean. Then they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elisha is indeed coming first to restore all things. How does it think about the Son of Man, that he has to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wanted, as is written about him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts bring honor and glory to you access to your holy name. All right. <coughs> so we've been going through the Gospel of Mark in its entirety, and I think it's the only way to make a transfer nation, ever make a lot of sense. It always struck me when the transfer of making around, and we flip the church over to white. But instead of this event, Jesus goes up on the mountain and shows Well, in Mark, it really connects with the whole ark that Jesus is building. We're using the phrase, Who is the Son of God? to look at Mark. Because in that very first verse of the first chapter of the book, it says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the point is, we define those terms very loosely. And Mark said they didn't know exactly what those terms meant before Jesus showed up because they had all sorts of different shades of meaning in the Old Testament. And Mark uses his gospel to give us a definition. So it starts with the baptism of Jesus and God's voice saying, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. Goes through Jesus' entire mission in Galilee to this point where God speaks again. And it will go to the end of the crucifixion, where when Jesus dies, the soldier says, Truly, this is the Son of God. So, for a book about the Son of God, a book about Christ and Jesus, the only times Mark really highlights like it is at the start, the middle, and the end. So, this is a, a middle crux issue, and it ties it back to last week. Last week, we looked at how Peter had declared that Jesus, You the Messiah. And Jesus told them, Well, that means I must bear the cross. I must suffer rejection and die. And Peter got mad at Jesus and said, No, it cannot be that way. And Jesus rebuked Peter, insisting that the way of the Messiah must be suffering. That those who would identify with Christ must likewise, in the same way, suffer rejection. So that they may join Christ in this ultimate vindication. And he makes this promise at verse 1. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come without. So Jesus has made this whole point that the way of the Messiah is to be denied self in full obedience, in humility. To be suffered, to suffer, and face rejection at the hands of Israel for an ultimate vindication. And Jesus gave a big challenge last week: anyone who's ashamed of me, I would be ashamed of also. He was driving home to not just his disciples, but the whole crowd, and have to follow that. Well, when you say things like that, you kind of have to back it up. And the transfiguration is Jesus in the Gospel of Mark backing up is his challenge to his disciples that even though he is the son of god and he has almighty power with him the way of god is the cross so things start getting really old testament really fast in verse 2 we have six days later when moses is told that he's going to go up mount sinai and actually see god in the cloud He's told to take six days to purify himself, so that on the 7th, the Sabbath, he would be ready to view God. So this is already harking back to the creation, to Moses in the Old Testament, preparing himself to get the law. And Jesus is here with Peter, James, and John going up a hot mountain apart. Jesus is picking this location on purpose. He's already taken six days, He's picking a mountain. Jesus is making a Moses reference through this act. And he gets up there and he is transfigured. That is a rare Greek verse. It only shows up here and in I think, one or two other places where it speaks about Christians in their final resurrected state. So we will be transfigured like Christ. So this is a peeling back of Christ's human covering I don't want to say it's humanity, it's only a covering. But this is a full revelation through God of the glory of God that is dwelling within the person of Christ. So when Moses goes up on Sinai, and he comes down, his face is glowing. Because God is seeing his dwelling in impenetrable light. And that impenetrable light that just gets Moses on the face is here shown to be going. Through Jesus' entire being, his clothes, and everything. And then there appeared with Jesus Elijah and Moses. Now, Moses, being the giver of the Old Testament, we know from first century Jewish sources, was kind of seen as the penultimate. He's almost a demigod to some fringe Jewish scholars in Jesus' day. So he represents everything about. Israel incarnate is standing there with Christ, and then you have Elijah, who for the Jewish people in Jesus' day represented the hope. Elijah was believed by the scribes to be the one who would come back before the Messiah finally came and kicked out all the bad guys. So Peter is looking at this, and it explains why he says what most of us probably always felt was really dumb. Peter is terrified and he says, let us build tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now the question is why he say that? That's because even as Jesus has told them that he must carry the cross, that he's going up and being transfigured to show them the power that he's going to lay down to bury the cross, Peter's mind in that very moment clicks and he says, okay, Israel's getting their sword right now. The new temple. The new tabernacle. Everything we waited for is happening in this moment. So Peter is not looking at the transfigured Christ through the eyes that we would. He's not experiencing it in this moment in a Christian sense. He's experiencing it in, in that very sense of last chapter, where Peter rebukes Christ for saying he must carry the cross. For for carrying the cross. This is Peter thinking like, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually mean it. Maybe Jesus means that he is just going to come to glory. Because the struggle here that Christ is, is getting into, as he's getting transfigured, is the fact that the disciples are only really willing to accept his messianic status when he's in glory. And in glory he is. Uh, it's a secondary aspect, but there's only two people who ever go up the mountain to meet God and speak with him. Moses. And, Elijah. and I think that the revelation here is so strong that it's showing Christ in his turning. And that Christ is the one speaking to Moses at Sinai, through whom the law comes. And Christ is the one speaking to Elijah at a still, small voice. So I think the, the implications of those two men being there is this is God revealed even in his extra temporal sense. So they are standing at the very crux of everything that has ever been revealed in the entirety of Scripture. Of course, Peter's kind of going to sit there and be like, well, this is it. I mean, imagine if we were standing in church, Moses showed up, Elijah showed up, Peter showed up. <coughs> Folks started getting out of the graveyard and walking back into church and figured, well, this is about it. Well, that's the experience that Peter is having. And he doesn't know how to translate that except for end times. And if this is the end times, and, and he's a good, obedient first-century you, the end times means that now the is going to be the new temple, Israel's going to be restored, the Messiah's going to come, and we're going to be the next we or even bigger. That, that's all he's got in his mind. And that's what it means in verse 6. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I don't like this translation at all. The Greek is very much more, they didn't understand. So Peter is blowing the whole thing that's going on. And yes, he's terrified, he's in awe, but he's only able to see it through his his own cultural understanding. And then a voice comes and answers Peter, and it's a cloud. That same sign on Old Testament says, this is my son beloved. Obey him for your originally. Listen to him. Now that gets really important when we get to the next part. So they look around and comes going to Jesus. So Moses and Elijah had pointing to Jesus. They've given the people the law. They have given the people uh, the hope of restoration. And they had prophesied that Jesus would come. But having shown up on the mountain with the disciples, they've done all they can. They've pointed to Jesus. But Jesus, the Son of God, has to go and do. Only Jesus can do Jesus' job. Yeah. So they come down the mountain. And we did in Judges of the Simons, the of Mark seems pretty familiar, but it's very different from the others. Jesus tells them to tell them no one what they've seen until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now the question is why does he do that? Well, Peter's tabernacles. And his idea that they're going to build the kingdom of God starting on that day. The fact that he already reached Christ and Christ said, well, the Messiah must carry a cross. Shows that Jesus understands these disciples, even after the transfiguration, don't get it. And they're not going to get it until after he is crucified. And that's why he tells them that they must wait until they see that Jesus bears the cross. and Jesus dies and is resurrected. They no longer can what they saw. Because they're just not listening to him. We get to verse 10. They keep the matter to themselves. Okay, Jesus said too. But they question what this rising from the dead could mean. So again, they can see the Messiah coming, Elijah prophesying the Messiah, and then everything going up into glory. What they couldn't see was a Messiah coming and any sort of dick. <laughs> the Messiah's Bible was supposed to be glorious. It's supposed to be the hope of all the nations consummated, and then all of a sudden it's going to go downward, Jesus? We, we have to get ourselves into that way of thinking. Because again, as we come to Mark, we try to make ourselves naive on the term of what's the Son of God, what does it mean to be Christ? We have to make ourselves a little naive about the end of the book. We can't fill in Mark's story before we tell it. We, you, you can't flip to chapter 14 and be like, oh, Jesus, back use okay. <laughs> so they ask him and again it's poignant. They ask why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's almost as if we're saying, Oh well, Jesus, are you still going on about this whole cross saying I still don't find it? Why did Elijah it? So there's a poignant thing. We don't normally like to think of the disciples in the gospels as being kinda of and I'll ask Christ Mark is really showing this. And I think that's why the tradition is very correct that Mark especially is Peter's preaching. <laughs> Only Peter can be this, this honest about the fact that he's just been up on the mountain of transfiguration and now he's bargaining Christ. But Christ is going to wrap things up. Because what did that cloud, what did that voice tell Peter up on that mountain? And all that transcendent glory that commanded Peter is listen to him. So Jesus responds, Elijah is indeed coming first to, to restore all things. But how is it written that the Son of Man must go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written about him. So Jesus now uses his teaching moment. He says, Yes, John, the figure of Elijah did come, in John the Baptist. He's a reformer. He looks and dresses like Elijah. Like Elijah, he's got a woman who doesn't like him. Elijah was always like nasty Jezebel. And John loses his head because he offends his wife. And if there's a weak-willed king. And that Ahab has <laughs> um let Jezebel just do what she wanted, all the prophets of Israel, and Herod himself gets tricked into serving up John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. So Jesus is saying, well, you've got all those things together, but the reason you can't see Elijah in John the Baptist is how it Peter has a real problem that the only way you can be the selected one of God is to go from glory to glory. And Jesus is here saying, no. John went from glory to apparent defeat. He lost his head. It looks like that's it for anything John the Baptist will ever have again. But Jesus is pointing out that in the end of the final vindication, John will stand as the witness of Christ from Malachi who appointed, baptized, and preached the way that the very Savior of the world would come and Jesus is saying, that should be the same way for me. Peter can only understand Jesus' as Messiah if he goes from showing up at the magical Christmas to saying, oh, the Lord all the wonderful right things, healing everybody. And then he goes into Jerusalem and, and gives him a whole bunch of morals, and now we always have to ever after. And Jesus is pointing out that's not how it's going to go. He comes in glory and there's a intense favor. He's in be preaching and healing, and we he have this transfiguration. And Peter is saying, it can only get better from there. And Jesus is saying, the rest <laughs> of this gospel is you going to be to is that the disciples do not grasp that there is a cross between this transfiguration and ultimate vindication. And I think that applies very readily to our Christian lives. Many, when they first come to faith, especially in the American tradition, tend to do so emotionally. They have a sense of being born again and victory and God transforming their lives. And if you listen to some preachers out there, it really sounds like you're going to go from accepting Christ into your heart, and then victory to victory to victory. You'll start praying, you'll start receiving blessing, and everything will be better in your life. And then when you die, you, you'll even hear stories at times. I don't want to knock them, because some of them I believe. But you'll hear stories about how, as they come to the end of life, the heavens open up and they see. So it's from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory is how the Christian life is often presented by some preachers. What no one wants to get into is that if we follow Christ, and this is the same message last week. Jesus challenged his disciples, if you follow me, folks ain't no one's going to like you. They're going to say, they've already in the gospel mark said was, Jesus was casting out memes demons. He was a sorcerer. Everything else was like hey, you like me, not everyone's going to like you. This is a repetition of that that I was and it would be very important in the first century church that Jesus is saying, if you follow me, there will be the final vindication. There will be the point where the kingdom has come and it is all completely done. But he's stealing the disciples a bit, and that that doesn't mean it's going to go from now it's here, now you have salvation, now it's all great, to overwhelming glory with no gifts. Hebrews reading today about a high priest that could identify with all of our weaknesses. A lot of the Christian life is lived out in and and in the dips in the bills. That doesn't sound exactly like the most positive thing to say that, well, you know, life isn't just upswings, following, upswings, following, upswings. But I think it shows that one. It gives a good reason why the gospel should be believed. I've always been of the opinion that if we make too idealized, if we just think that it's the power of positive thinking or something else, then it's not related to the lives that we actually live in that Christians experience. Because how many of us asked will we really have gone from that initial belief? To perhaps a little bit of a high? To then some very deep down lows? And the worst thing with the other people, to who are brothers and sisters in Christ is to say, well, you know, you should have gone from glory to glory to glory to glory. How dare you get down into that ditch? See, that's what Peter's actually kind of doing to Jesus. He's telling Jesus, you have to live a positive life. You can never carry care that cross. You will never suffer. It would be wrong for you to suffer, Jesus. That's not very disciple. <laughs> Now does that mean suffering in and of itself is some sort of moral of good? No. We should believe it whenever we find it. But I think it is telling for those of us who've been hurt by it because we've been in a bad mood or because our day has not been going well that they need us. And we see this even in Jesus' own walk with his disciples on the mountain of transfiguration. So Mark is starting to show us that Isaiah that suffered serving the way he relates with us as Jesus in all of chapter 9 is turning and facing Jerusalem. Because in the Gospel of Mark now, Jesus going down from this temple. It's almost as if Mark is saying it's all that from here to the big cross. What can the other. us? I don't want to give us the answer of the way. I think the Transfiguration is one of those ones to just ponder and think. What would it be like to see Christ in all of his glory, and what would that mean for us if Christ were to appear to us in all of his glory? Would we take that as a spiritual we've arrived, or would we take that as a spiritual call that there's further discipleship to go? Let us pray.